0: ensembles do not consist of staffs they consist of people doing things you are writing music for people doing things
1: hello and welcome everybody my name is will churnoff and you're listening to the rhythm changes podcast a home for creative improvising local music people This show is an ongoing, open-ended series of conversations with folks who make their community fun and prosperous. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to follow this feed wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, rhythmchanges.ca. Our guest today is an electroacoustic composer and musician who describes his work as radical openness and synthesizing the music of the world, past and present. He is a classical and electric guitarist, in addition to composing, conducting, and using electronics. Here in the fall of 2021, his latest releases are A Thousand Points of Light, recorded at the BAMP Center with vibraphonist and percussionist Trevor Tureski. Tau 20 Tree Temple, a solo work, and Isolation Journal 4, Friends, made with six collaborators and the support of the Canada Council. All three are available on his band camp, and you can find him online at johnolivermusic.com. So please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, John Oliver. Hi, Will. Thanks. So before getting into your recent work, I'd love to know what were your favorite rock bands growing up?
0: <laughs> let's Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, my The first LP I bought at the age of 12 was Jimi Hendrix Experience. The second album I bought, also when I was 12 years old, was Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. So that gives you an idea of where things began.
1: So you only listen to people who joined the 27 Club?
0: i didn't know it at the time did i uh but yeah uh they they were hard hard hardcore and and had you know intense musical expressions so that's what i was attracted to very early on in a kind of uh, more intense kind of uh color of sound of the instrument or the voice you know very very strong sound yeah yeah
1: what did you take from that and bring into what you do well, I I think it's the uh
0: the really rich sound of the instrument in Hendrix's case the distorted guitar in Janis Joplin's case her capacity to make her natural voice sound like a distorted electric guitar practically.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Um, I like that. <laughs> you know,
0: just just the way that gravelly voice was uh, was so intense and the the way her voice moved through a line uh, was at once a blues singer, but she really pushed her voice uh, in ways that most people would not. So it, it it's that kind of uh, intensely, um, sort of grainy type of sound, but uh, but also a, a, a very expressive. Um, sort of digging deep type expression, not not superficial. Uh, so superficial lightness is not my, uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> my not my thing. Gotcha. Al- al- although you know, I do have a lighter side. Like I'm a fan of Eric Satie as well. So there there is a kind of yin yang thing going there.
1: So it is kind of a heavier note. But if we start with a thousand points of light recorded at the BAMP Center thirty years ago. Talk a little bit about the theme of that project.
0: Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. As with many of my projects, uh, a sound idea will often come first and titles come second, although my titles are usually quite evocative. So people always think, oh, well, you must have started with the title. And And it's often not the case. Trevor and I just, uh, we put together uh, his percussion setup with big bass drums, some drums and cymbals and his vibraphone. And at that time, everything was done through MIDI. And so we actually put MIDI sensors on all these things and put them into a detector that converts audio into MIDI. And we connected those up to two Atari computers. And we were using generative or algorithmic software at the time reacting to what the player is actually playing, but the sounds themselves might be quite, uh, quite different. And in my case, I was designing a lot of sound at that point on FM synthesizers especially. So we hooked them up to two computers, one running a software by Daniel Scheidt, uh, which was algorithmic based. And then I just had a logic On the Atari. Everybody knows Logic Pro software on Apple Macintosh computers now, but they started off on Atari, and I started off. uh, So I I just had that thing open, and I was simply working with um, MIDI Delay. He was playing so many notes that we were actually overwhelming the technical spec of MIDI
1: wow so
0: <laughs> so it was excessive okay. music, okay? we were making an excessive amount of noise of data and whatever you want to call it at that time, I especially was interested in multi tracking and and many, many layers of sound, clouds of sound. Trevor plays so fast his his bebop vibraphone style is just so so energetic and fast. We came up with the the title "A Thousand Points of Light" as a kind of simultaneous realization about what we were doing sonically, and that George Bush Sr. had just destroyed Baghdad. And so we took his very light comment of volunteers being a thousand points of light in in the world because they they brighten up the world by volunteering. We took his phrase, a thousand points of light, and turned it on its head, referring to the thousand points of burning on the ground of Baghdad we Neither Trevor nor I were particularly pleased with the idea that an entire city of citizens should be destroyed and their culture, uh, all sorts of cultural things were wiped out in that raid of of Baghdad. So that's why we called it A Thousand Points of Light and we called the fourth part of our, uh, we laid down four tracks and the fourth part we called Desert Storm because it really had this feeling of, of a storm.
1: Yeah, George Bush senior Desert Storm. This is of course the year 1990, 1991.
0: 91 in January 91, yeah. Yeah. The the weapons of mass destruction lie and and all of the lies that uh, that the US government has um, put to their people uh, over decades to justify their wars. Um are an aberration in my view
1: to what extent do you feel that stuff is all symbolically relevant now in this particular time, thirty years later?
0: It seems unfortunately to be eternally uh, relevant um, the The lies that that uh, that are used to justify these military expenditures just continue to be fabricated on a regular basis, and the notion of a kind of overwhelming transformational thing that happens in society, okay, which is a kind of general way to describe a thousand points of light that's happening now all the time with earthquakes and volcanoes and flooding and tsunamis and so on and so forth. The whole uh, uh, you know disaster that is occurring in various ways all over the globe now. That's why I felt this was uh, an an important thing to re-release at this point because it it's it increasingly has echoes through all of these massive changes in our landscape and in our climate and in in the upheavals socially that are occurring now as as people are finally realizing that we need radical change now.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And then if you look at Tao Twenty Tree Temple. You say in the liner notes on the Camp release for that solo project of yours that it's related to the climate conference 2021 Glasgow this year and a youth conference in Milan. Talk a bit about that.
0: Yeah. Well, um, again, it's, it's a social conscience or social justice uh, issue. Um, I've... I've, I've uh, been starting to do these solo projects that are inspired by the Tao Te Ching or, or Taoism in general, which posits that it's sort of this collection of ideas, the I Ching that is a collection of ideas about how you would appropriately behave under certain circumstances. <laughs> I actually consulted the oracle, as it's sometimes called, and came up with the 20th hexagram, which was essentially… Uh, saying it's time to get serious, to create a project that is expected of you. Because, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I I guess, you know, I have a reputation for doing certain things and I want to do well. And it was almost like a warning sign to say, you know, be relevant, uh, be strong and create a a really good thing. So the image of this hexagram, number twenty. Is of an arch on a mountaintop. In the symbology and the the imagery of of the I Ching, uh, notion of sky and earth are really important. So that archway, and they are found throughout the mountains in China, is a sort of a link between earth and sky. And so I transformed that into the tree temple that is the link between the sky and the earth. I wanted to create an album that takes a lot of tree and forest-like sounds and kind of creates a spirit of the tree. Uh, and so it's a, it's really literally an environmental album, an album that tries to evoke what it might f- feel like to be a tree, you could say. Huh. And uh, that the tree is... That the, that the forests are are being assaulted right now. Huh. And that the forests are actually providing us with our livelihood, in, in a sense. And by that, I mean that they are carbon sinks. And when you destroy them, they, it releases that carbon into the atmosphere, which has the opposite effect that the forest, if left standing, has. And that is to contain the carbon and and, and not allow it to escape. Yeah. You know, the trees are trying to tell us something like stop, Cutting us down, stop destroying all of the life that is in us and that we host. You know, all of the animals and and insects and just all of the beings that are that are in the forest uh, are under assault. And uh, so, you know, it's it's something that Fairy Creek people could take as their soundtrack or cop 26 people could take as their soundtrack uh if if they if they wish to have you know a a sort of different type of uh sonic experience accompanying them on their uh journey as they uh you know uh agitate for for the necessary change that you know that we we really need right now so that that was all kind of inspired by the same kind of uh you know, frustration with society not going the right way. So we've we've already spoken about two projects that are very much related to, I guess, politics in that sense, or uh, the feeling of social justice anyway.
1: Yeah. Is it fair to say that these projects are more serious projects? Yeah. Yeah. It seems that music is an interesting way to make a statement about a serious topic that can transcend local and global because here you can put something out at a specific time so it becomes relevant now but it can be relevant to the thing that's happening on vancouver island or the thing that's happening at the global conference and you don't have to change your work to do that it can be read as being relevant to both those things in an interesting way not many other stuff can well
0: yeah music has that great advantage that it's it's not telling a specific story that's linked to necessarily a specific event. It could be described that way, but it could be listened to by future generations, uh, as you say, and and, uh, they could find relevance uh, for their time as well. And music is just uh, wonderful uh, (laughs) at achieving that.
1: Yeah, it's like the best protest songs are like that too. They have that general quality, but they can also be read for... The moments where it matters right like a change is going to come blowing in the wind right. i was just going to say hey, hey, several yeah. <laughs> dylan tunes
0: uh you know are eternal and uh, they they keep recurring and coming back to us so um yeah precisely yeah
1: yeah we will have a fair number of listeners who are creative and improvising musicians and maybe composers and some of them will have applied for funding and got it or tried and not gotten it yet or are thinking about doing that in the near future to make things happen to fulfill their vision so can you talk about what it was like for Isolation Journal or any other project like that to apply to Canada Council
0: well you know uh, applying for funding is is an, uh, an up and down thing it's cyclical um, and it's a bit of a crapshoot people say Um, that said, um, whether you like it or not, the Canada Council has directives and those things change from one year to the next. You know, as, as an artist, you want to maintain your integrity at all costs. That's sort of, that's what keeps you proud and keeps you getting up in the morning. Um, and, and, and there, of course, I'm talking about, um, you know, sound artists, or painters, or writers, or whoever is a creative person, not necessarily working within the commercial domain.
1: That's fair to say. We can say non-commercial, pretty much. It's yeah.
0: it's it is non-commercial, and and even the Canada Council has that written in their uh, guidelines. So, artists like us, we we are motivated by having a vision and realizing that vision. That's that's what we do. Right, but uh, one of the things that that I just advise people to do is to make sure they're very familiar with with the sort of the culture of the grant body, whether it's a provincial arts council or the Canada Council or some other foundation, for example. You have to know whether uh, there's a fit between your project and the body that you're applying. In the case of Isolation Journal, uh, this is the fourth iteration. This is the fourth album to come out, and I was lucky in so far as my initial impulse was to, uh, when the pandemic hit, was to phone up my friends, old colleagues that I'd collaborated with in the past, and to say, "Hey, what you know? What are we going to do? Uh, we can't present concerts, so you know, and I want to keep creating stuff." So actually, the first conversation was easy because it was with a Swedish guitarist who would commissioned a piece for me 10 years earlier. I said, hi, how you doing? We had so much fun doing our first project. We had over the years, we'd said, well, we should do that again. We should, you know, maybe you can come from Sweden to Vancouver. We can do a concert. But nothing ever happened. And then pandemic hit. We can't do anything. We can't even get in an airplane. So Stefan sent me uh, a 29-minute recording of him recording on a three-string tall lute uh, Vietnamese lute in the hills above a town in Vietnam. And I listened to this recording. He had taken his three-string lute and he had detached the strings from the headstock and attached them to the tree. And he had done this free improvisation where he had been plucking the instrument and making very, very low sounds with these long strings attached to the tree. And then um, other sounds uh, with his pick and very, very sort of textural free improv thing with the sound of the, the village and the dogs and the cars and the people sort of distantly in the background. So, there was this conversation going on between the environment, the sound environment that was around him, and him creating a sound environment. Wow. Really, really fascinating recording. Yeah. And I said, well, so what I'll do, I'll take your recording and, and I'll work some magic on it with my computer processing and I'll send it back to you. So I did that with just a small section of uh, the recording, and he just—he was blown away. He said, "Wow, this is great! I mean, we we could do a whole album, could we?" I said, "Probably." <laughs> <laughs> and we had an album within five or six weeks. Uh, we had this entire album called Isolation Journal, and that was so much fun. It gave me the idea to talk to my Canadian uh, collaborators and uh, ask them if they'd be interested. And initially I thought, well, I just got to talk to, you know, several people. I don't necessarily know that a whole album is going to come out of every conversation. But um, my first conversation uh, with Bandoneon player and composer Douglas Schmidt, uh, he sent me a few recordings. I repeated the process. I processed the sound, sent it back to him. And he said, oh, that that's amazing, you know. I prefer listening to your recordings than the recordings I sent to you. <laughs> so uh, he he sent me the stuff and we, again, came out with Isolation Journal 2 uh, within a very short time. Yeah. And no talk of money because we all know that we've just got to keep active. Yeah. And we've got to keep doing things that get us up in the morning and... And then I had a conversation with Francois Oul, uh, the clarinet player uh from Vancouver and and it was the same story. He, he sat down with his microphone, he did some Francois Oul stuff for an hour or so, sent me the recordings and th- the third album came was ready within a, 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 again within about a month or two.
1: Yeah, and you're here in the fall releasing three projects, but this Isolation Journal 3, this didn't come out long before now.
0: July 2020. Yeah. Okay. It's the first one. So it was uh, within five months of the pandemic hitting. Yeah. Or four months, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that that came out first. And, and then it was, well, c- quite a while, I guess May 2021 was when Douglas' uh, album came out. And then
1: Francois' album came out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. Just like very recently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it's all, uh, you know, it, it still takes time. the The process of actually putting the album together can... Sometimes take longer than than making the album itself, at least with these projects, or maybe about the same. You know, we have to get all the materials together to actually publish and whatnot. So, uh, but it sure has been a, a really real eye opener. the The fourth album is essentially those two musicians plus uh, four others that were also part of the conversations that were happening. And I decided going back to the original question, which was uh, about How do you pitch your project to a Canada Council, for example? In this particular case, it was great because there was an alignment of what I really, really wanted to do, a passion project, with their concerns of the moment, which were to provide grants to as many people as possible. They wanted to keep musicians working and getting paid. And I thought, well, I'm paying six musicians to work with me. This could fly.
1: Yeah, that's not the same thing too. That's an interesting point as saying you want to fund as many applicants as possible because there's some other people where they're going to use the funds to do stuff by themselves or with one other person. And then there's people like you who will put six or more people to work with that project.
0: Right. So that was a strategic uh, thing on the part of the Canada Council that happened to align with what I was going to do anyway. And I just, uh, I saw the project and I said, well this is probably a no-brainer for the jury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh sure enough, uh I wasn't I actually wasn't surprised when I got news that uh that it had been accepted. I mean, yeah. there was probably a lot of competition, but I knew that that was the kind of project that has enough components in it that push it to the top that it had a really good chance of succeeding. So like I say, if you're applying for grants, um the best scenario is when your plan aligns with what's going on with their strategic initiatives or whatever. Um, And if, if it's not, well then ask yourself, okay, I've got three projects coming up, which one best aligns with what they're up to. Yeah. Right. And, and just do that one, you know, first.
1: So maybe the most practical advice for us could be to, have our eggs in many baskets so that when we have opportunities to get funding, we can make sure that we have the right project ready to go rather than being all in on one that might not fit super well into different funding streams. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That That's very uh, wise advice, yeah. Okay, well, you just gave it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah, this is by far the nerdiest question that i've ever asked on the rhythm changes podcast but there's no better person to try and relate this than yourself i'd love to hear over the decades the history of all the music notation software that you've used (laughs) okay that's a bit nerdy it it, that's that's a big one
0: Uh, i'll try to keep the story short so short story is i started with logic on the atari computer and i wrote my first opera on that computer with a laser writer, whatever it was called, Apple printer, printing one page every four
1: minutes. Yeah. So is this Logic, the DAW, or is this a different Logic that does music notation?
0: This, this is Logic in 1988, oh, yeah, wow. 90, no audio, just MIDI. Yeah. So Logic became Logic Audio, which became Logic, which became Logic Pro. Yeah. Which is the you know flagship Apple daw that we have now, um I was actually responsible for troubleshooting a number of issues uh and and uh, creating solutions for hidden tricks to get the notation aspect of that program to work properly because i had to you know i was creating you know different types of tuplets and rests and i I i had to invent ways to force the notation to notate how you write the rhythms correctly for example and so uh i was early on the forums uh you know talking with the developers about these sorts of issues and came up with a number of solutions that got shared and so i used logic for a long time uh, as my notation software and it was not friendly Um, it took a long time to do things to move moving objects for example was very slow and uh, eventually uh, that moved on to the macintosh uh, apple macintosh platform and i switched to that uh, platform. And then Sibelius came along. Well, in 1993, I tried one project with Finale, Finale 98. I'll never forget it. Um, I hated it. <laughs> I just really did not like it at all. Sibelius came along. I tried it. I liked it. I adopted it. And then I got really good at that. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote Upwind for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra in 2004. And I have never written an orchestral piece with that many parts and that many notes that fast ever in my life. It was so easy to use. How many parts were there? Well, it was the full orchestra, so I bet there were probably like over forty. Yeah, about about fifty. Yeah, fifty or sixty parts, something like that. And you know, and I was using uh, polyrhythms and you know the kind of stuff that's a little bit more difficult to notate. Uh, it was just super fast, so I was really, really pleased with it. But it still had things about it that I didn't quite like. So when Dorico came up, I adopted Dorico after, like, when it got to version three. Then I thought, okay, now it's now it's ready, and I, I'm ready. So when was this? Probably a year, a year and a half ago, something like that. Oh, really recently? Okay, yeah, fairly recently. Yeah, the way we we make music, basically, it no longer there's no vestige of the publisher. You mean like the sheet music publisher? Yeah, the sheet music publisher. You know, it all started off with musical staffs and how you might write music on staffs, but that's not how composers think. Composers and and actually musical ensembles do not consist of staffs. They consist of people doing things. And Dorico's paradigm is, you are writing music for people doing things.
1: If you don't have software systems that allow for the people to just be the people and express themselves more freely, you probably end up with less interesting music, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's what happens is people adapt to the feedback loop that's set up for them when they're writing. And so if they just put a bunch of staves up, they're less likely to just f- freely go with what their imagination is, is going to produce. You know, creative people are people who are highly prepared to do what they need to do. But in the moment that they're doing it, there's just, there are so many details going on that if you ask them to stop and document it, you would destroy their creative process. Huh. Because the creative process has so many loose ends going on that are intangible. You can't figure out exactly what it is. And if you stopped to try to figure it out, it would be gone. So the creative act is that act of capturing all of those vibrations that you know that are that are mental and feeling and all of the and 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 putting it into the artistic work. Yeah. And that's why artistic people can't be interrupted when they're doing their work. Uh because it's a flow that once they're out of the flow, that's it.
1: Yeah. I first encountered your work, we figure maybe about ten years ago when you came to New Westminster Secondary School.
0: Yeah. I never encountered a music program like what I encountered when I had to try to guide people in their apparently compositional pursuit at Newest Secondary. Yeah. I was a bit shocked to see that everything was computer-centered. It struck me right away that this was an administrative decision and not a musical one. Musicians couldn't possibly believe that kids should be spending their time in front of a computer to make music. And, you know... This coming from somebody who spends their entire day in front of a computer making music. But did I start that <laughs> way? No, I did not start that way. It wasn't
1: what you were taught.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I learned music by playing many musical instruments, singing in a choir, uh, performing music, and a computer came kind of late in the game. Yeah. And you were a guitarist, and I'm, and I remain a guitarist. Yeah. So you know, the the computer was a really good way to make very clear scores, which was of concern to me before computers came along. All my scores are very, very clean, notation very complex and clear. Um, and so the computer was a great way to do that, you know, to create a very clear, clean score that you could change without having to, you know, tear a sheet off and rewrite and, and whatnot. So I, I liked the, uh, the working method of the computer, even though it was very slow in the beginning but i really don't believe that people can be uh musical at a computer yeah it, it it's it's a lot more complex than that and a lot richer uh than than that it it encompasses everything that is uh proportional and mathematical and abstract and philosophical and gutsy and in the moment and physical it's all encompassing which is probably why Musicians are among the happiest people on earth because they're completely fulfilled by, <laughs> by what they're
1: doing. And that's you too, right? I feel yeah. that way a lot. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah for or at sure. least I always want to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. You know, I, I think there's, uh, there's a fundamental difference in spirit between people who just mix pre existing culture and really that's all they do, and people who, you know, have visions about things and, and they actually want to create stuff that they have never heard and and i'm one of those people if if i if i create something that sounds like somebody else has already done it then i'll probably say oh well you know why bother i'm yeah. i'm seeking <laughs> i'm seeking something that astonishes me in some way yeah and so if it if it doesn't astonish me or really evo- you know make me stand up and say wow did i do that Th- then i probably won't pursue it yeah because i i want other people who hear it to say wow you know who did that <laughs> yeah so uh yeah that's the creative the real creative spirit is that that desire to seek out uh something you know special and rare
1: yeah so you are working a lot on presenting your work in video format do you see that as a way that you really want to do your storytelling right now
0: yeah well that's that's an interesting question because that is my current right now thing that i'm working on and that is to create video in the same moment that i'm creating sound art i'm going to call it sound art now just because it it has that word art in it that is a link to the visual world um and the reason for that is very simple because i'm kind of equally frustrated bored i'm not quite sure what the right word is but uh, you know the the standard paradigm for film is that The sound comes last to paint an emotion or a mood or a backdrop.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you're amplifying or like adding something. You're like filtering what's already been done for the film. Yeah, you're
0: responding to the story and your job is to enhance it in some way so you have a job to do and it's secondary to the visual realm
1: yeah that's why they call it like incidental music in a way right that word works there right. yeah
0: exactly so that's the the standard film paradigm is the film is telling a story and you're going to help that story be told with a soundtrack um the avant-garde uh flips that around and Uh, you know, tries to create direct connections through software and um, what's it called, algorithms and uh, generative software and so on and so forth to create some kind of direct links between the visual and the sonic. Uh, But oftentimes their syntax or way of creating is so completely non-narrative that people don't want to follow that either because it's got no no story to tell yeah or or the story is purposely covered up to a point where you don't even really know what's going on and you can't figure out why you're not invited to know what's going on which is the frustration that a lot of people have with avant-garde stuff so i'm interested in a kind of middle area where uh, i create music that is evocative of something not necessarily with a narrative but the feeling of something relevant and that the the visual image is created in the same inspirational moment as the music. Yeah. Now this is done on by DJs on the dance floor all the time. Totally. But it tends to be well because it's dance music, it tends to be quite simple in in what it's doing. Uh, you know, it, it's functioning to get people moving. Yeah. And there's usually a theme of some kind that can be loosely referred to in these images that are flashing. And and because things are fairly simple, it's easy to line up rhythms with changes in the visual and whatnot. But what I'm doing is more subtle than that. So it's very interesting to see more subtle connections between, you know, the sound gesture or, or passage or texture or whatever it is, and, and then to see the, how you might build a visual corollary of that that actually makes the music pop. yeah. And you listen to it with your eyes closed, and it has a certain effect. And then when you watch the video, it's it's even more intense as a sonic experience. And that's what I did with uh, Francois's track on on the album, Yeah, uh, Friends. Uh, every when I watch the video, the ending is just absolutely spectacular. It's pretty good as audio only, but when you see the video as well, it's just, it's like wow. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's that wow moment that I'm looking to make more of as I explore more video.
1: There's mediums within just video, too, right? Like YouTube is a medium, TikTok is a medium, you know, something else is another. So, there's maybe some considerations there about what it's like, what the viewing habits are on that platform, and how easy it is to build an audience on that platform and how you do it. Maybe there's context there about like how you do your storytelling. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's just a medium. The only thing is is how many people are going to see it and how it will be received through that medium. Right? Yeah. But the medium of of visual creation is not fundamentally changed since the invention of television. The creative use of the medium of visual representation hasn't fundamentally changed. The only thing that's changed is the transfer of uh, of journalism into this phenomenon known as the youtuber yeah who's essentially now chatting their journalism yeah it's even no longer sort of commentary from people who sort of view themselves somewhat as experts everybody's an expert <laughs> and anybody can turn on their microphone on their computer and and just create uh something to get followers and how do you feel that that's the case well I just i don't i don't follow it so i don't really know but uh, i just when i do see it uh just when looking at somebody else's use of it and and just seeing the videos that go by and the kinds of things that people follow that are of no interest to me yeah but uh so much culture has moved online that people now create their heroes through these youtubers yeah and Instead of following, like, uh, you know, during my time, we'd watch a half-hour sitcom that was actually written by authors. And, you know, you'd have script writers and actors and all of these people creating a story for you. Well, now these people just get in front of a microphone and they tell you about their daily life and they try to create a kind of mini-series
1: yeah. <laughs> around their daily life. Yeah. And they're very successful, you know? So what has your experience been like using Patreon?
0: Um, let me just be cynical for a moment and say that There are lots of software developers who like to figure out ways that they can use artists who are creative people uh, to monetize, to make money, basically. And the notion of creating software structures that will allow people to use a platform to, for them to do the work, get subscribers, and then the people making the platform get a cut. That's all that Patreon is.
1: And that today is. A, a very trendy topic that is called the creator economy yeah, and all
0: yeah. of those all of those people who call themselves creatives are not actually creative people; they are people pushing structures and platforms on which real creative people could present their work and The problem with patreon it 's good for certain types of people. The most successful people on Patreon are people who are already successful well known comedians, for example. Or musicians who are already quite famous, and, and people want to do a little bit more than buy their album or whatever. But, you know, pe- people like to, they're, they're trying to create solutions around the notion that there are new ways to monetize things. But the fact is that musicians make music, they record it, and they want somebody to pay for the recording if they want to listen to it. Very simple. And this is the music industry, so to speak. Yeah, this is the music industry, so to speak. So Patreon's not the best place to support my work. The best place to support my work is go to Bandcamp, buy one track, and you have already contributed more than Spotify will contribute in a, you know, several months um, because streaming revenue is, is a joke. It's only it's something to laugh at. And that's why so many artists are on ba- Bandcamp and focus everyone's energy on Bandcamp. Okay, the problem with Patreon is that you, as a creative person, you have to keep reporting to your patrons and uh and providing them with stuff so it's I guess it's okay if if um you're a widget maker or you make things that you can keep giving away to your patrons to keep them happy, apparently, but musicians really like just making their recordings and then putting it out there and you get it so Bandcamp is the best. For that, because you can subscribe to the band or the artist, and that way you're supporting them on a, you know, a sustained basis, which is what they need. Patreon also does that. But Patreon has this thing called um, perks, and the, the person, you know, the artist who's, who's you know, get, trying to get patrons on Patreon has to provide these perks for each level that you contribute at. So it's a lot of work to put together all of these perks and keep people happy for their $10 that they're putting in or their $20 that that they're putting in. Uh, Musicians don't really want to do more than that. I mean, they'd rather hire somebody to make the t-shirts and do whatever merch and all that stuff that has to be done, right? And so uh, that's why, you know, serious artists are on Bandcamp.
1: I do have a bunch of thoughts about that. One of them is that, this is what you're describing is maybe a problem with patronage or membership subscription in general, right? Not necessarily a problem with Patreon because like if you were running this same sort of thing and people were subscribing to you through your own site, you'd have the same problem, right? Like of the perks and managing the patrons and such, right?
0: So, I mean, I guess the difference is that the, the people who come up with these ideas are calling themselves creatives, but but they're not actually creative people. They're managers, and they're coming up with ideas that they think will bring in more revenue. But I guess that's my, my point always is that, um, you know, creating scenarios whereby the people who are going to join your platform to make money for you have to do a bunch of things and jump through a bunch of hoops to make the money for you. Yeah, just, it just sort of doesn't, doesn't really work for me. Um, and I have noticed, uh, as I've explored the Patreon platform, subscribed to a few people and whatnot, that uh, almost everybody simply couldn't keep up with the monthly requirement that you provide X, Y, Z. They couldn't do it, and they and they didn't. And I'd get the email, you know, three or four months later that, oh, they're doing that, or oh, they're doing that. And I thought to myself, well, you know, they're probably also putting that out on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else. It's, it, there's nothing special about Patreon, particularly. I mean, you'd have to be putting out a lot of PR press and and various, you know, for it to be special on Patreon. Because if you're a working artist, you're going to be talking about your work and putting putting it out there on the social media platforms that you already subscribe to. You're not going to do extra your Patreon people that you aren't going to do for everybody else because you want everybody to know. Right, and <laughs> so so I, I I don't know I I find the whole thing a bit kind of busy work that uh, doesn't really it's not worth worth the return. I, I still really believe that um, you know even though I do a lot of stuff myself on my own, uh, I still think that there's a place for let's say record companies and people who may actually try to um, you know help you get better known i I still think there's a place for those publicity people um as long as they're not unduly you know uh taking advantage of 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 you as a creative person but we're most of us aren't in that position anyway we have to do it all ourselves that's just true
1: (laughs) yeah well john this has absolutely flown by i do have one more question that you can give an answer of any length you like to, but I'm curious what you would say here. As of now, in your opinion, what questions will the music of the 21st century be remembered for asking?
0: Oh my goodness. You know, uh, music is too vast to narrow down to any kind of general answer about that. Um, the, The questions that temporary art music has been asking since the 1970s, are still being asked. And that art music, uh, there hasn't been much aesthetic progress. Not much has changed. The only thing that has changed is that I think people uh, a generation younger than myself and younger uh, do find European avant-garde from the 60s and 70s I think they really just think of that as being old. And I do think that the kind of music that I got behind quite early, which was spearheaded by Ligeti and Sinakis and the Minimalists, which is to say music that is either based on process or on textural transformation, that that music has taken over as the beginning of a contemporary sound that has led us into the 21st century and the crossover reference between that and kind of art rock or prog rock you know that that's there's an intersection there where you know the experiment with sound and i think that has that's what the early 21st century will be remembered for is the real advancement in sound for itself rather than as musical notes
1: nice well John Oliver, you're a thoughtful artist with integrity. I really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks so much for coming to chat with me today. You're welcome, Will. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. If you haven't followed the feed yet, make sure you do. And think about your friends who might enjoy listening too. Tell them to search for the Rhythm Changes podcast wherever they get their podcasts. If you want more from us, visit our website, rhythmchanges.ca, or follow at Chernoff Music on Twitter. That's me. The Rhythm Changes podcast is at Chernoff Music Production.